On this episode of The Jukebox, we had two guests, Craig Cipolla and Oliver Harris. Craig is curator of North American Archaeology at the Royal Ontario Museum and a member of the Anthropology Department at the University of Toronto. Oliver is Associate Professor of Archaeology at the University of Leicester's School of Archaeology and Ancient History. You can follow Craig on Twitter, at Craig N. Cipolla, and Ollie as well, at OJTH. Craig and Ollie recently visited the Joukowsky Institute to discuss their new book, Archaeological Theory in the New Millennium, Introducing Current Perspectives. Carl spoke with them about their book, British television, and karaoke. about um, where your interest in archaeology or just the past in general came from? Well, I didn't want to be an archaeologist at all. I, uh, I grew up in a city called Bath in the UK, which has upstanding Roman baths beautifully preserved. I worked there for a number of years as a waiter. I thought it was all incredibly boring. And in the UK education system, you have to make a very narrow series of decisions about your education at 16, where you narrow down to just three or four subjects. And I picked all sciences and I was going to be a biochemist or something like that. And then I went, did them at what we call A-level, which is our 16 to 18 year old uh, study period. And I thought they were incredibly boring. And so I was casting around for something else to do. And my mother was flicking through a pro- uh, prospectus from the University of Sheffield and said, what about archaeology? And I thought, all right, I'll give that a go. It can't be any worse than this stuff. Took it up and my first lecture, my first ever lecture was by uh, Mike Parker Pearson, who's a professor at UCL, very well-known archaeologist, but was then at Sheffield. And he did an incredible lecture about Malagasy archaeology and anthropology. And by the end of that first 50 minutes, that was all I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I've told Mike that story. He doesn't really believe it. But it's, it's true. That, that 50 minutes ah, changed so my life. It was like a yeah. light switch. Yeah, and I think that I had no idea what archaeology was as a subject. There was a famous TV show in the UK called Time Team, mm-hmm. you know, three days to excavate a site, which I'd watched plenty of, and it was all right. It was interesting enough. But I had no idea about the challenge to what it meant to be human, that archaeology and anthropology. I mean, that's, and that lecture was really about both of those subjects, what that meant to really think through the differences between human beings in the world. Mm. And that, that one lecture particularly was about funerary practice in particular, um, looking at the construction of tombs and the organisation of economies around funerary practice. I mean, it's nothing, thematically it connects with what I do now, but I don't study Madagascan archaeology at all. But just the complexity of the world began to open up for me then. And throughout my undergraduate degree, the more I studied particularly archaeological theory and the way that challenged me to utterly reconceptualise my world, the more I wanted to know and the more I wanted to be teaching other people about the power of the discipline that I was engaged with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you? Uh, no, I had no ambition to be an archaeologist uh, when I was uh, in high school and things like that. No, I had no plans at all. Um, um, and I didn't, I went to actually university right after college and, um, I didn't even, it was like undeclared major. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I left the university after a year and I just sort of went and worked and lived in the world and, uh, just sort of 
traveled a little bit and um, I rode my skateboard a lot. And, um, and where, where was this? This is on Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. This is where I sort of grew up. And uh, I went to school in Boston and then I sort of dropped out. I didn't really go to many classes my first year. I went to Northeastern. And, um, and then I sort of decided after, you know, a while, I said, well, I got to go and do something. So uh, I was, I'm very strong in math, surprisingly. And so I went and I started to do a degree in computer science at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I moved to Boston and again, and, uh, and I just happened to sort of take an elective course in cultural anthropology from this anthropologist called uh, um, Fred Gamst. And uh, he doesn't know this, but he actually started to transform me. And I thought, uh, I love anthropology. And I, I just am not that interested in programming. And, and, and I just sort of got really focused on anthropology. And that summer I went to do, um, to try out field archeology. span I did a field school in a place called Sylvester Manor with, um, with Steve Marzowski, who, who actually went here for his PhD. And he's a professor at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And we worked on this site called uh, Sylvester Manor, like I said. And this is a site that is uh, sort of a Dutch slash English provisioning plantation. There's enslaved Africans and there's indigenous people there. And the thing that's remarkable about Sylvester Manor is, you know, you have people visiting you and they say, well, what, who, who made this, this, you know, this archaeological deposit that you're digging right now? And the answer is, you can't tell. It's just this plural setting. And just that, that challenge is something that still haunts my work. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. That's this 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 pluralism, you know, in, in the 17th century, where it was when the site began, that you can actually use the traditional tools of archaeology that you know, and parse that archaeological record and say, oh, this is the part where this person lived and that. Right. So so that that challenge actually is something I'm still uh, in the search for, you know, and on the hunt for. Uh, I don't think I'm ever going to solve it. That's the point, right? Is the challenge, the questions that you ask, and so at that point, I became an archaeologist. I knew it like within the first day. Mm -hmm. of being in the field that this is what I was going to do. And I thought like, well, this is kind of tough. You know, you got to go to grad school, you got to publish stuff. And I never thought I could do any of that. And uh, I just kept, I, I have like a determinism, you know, uh, I'm very determined. And um, when, I, when I have my, my mindset and uh, I just sort of dedicated my life to it after that. And here I am after like, I think, you know, I think it was 12 consecutive years of, of higher education. Mm -hmm. um, I did my, my PhD at Penn with Bob Purcell, who's here now, right. and um, I ended up doing a really unique project that wasn't naturally in Bob's area of, of expertise. It wasn't really mine. It was a new sort of set of questions, a new group to work with. And, uh, and then I started working with indigenous people as a grad student, and that was like, I'm, I'm not going to ever do anything else. You know, that's, that's really, um, it added this level of complexity to that question I just mentioned, to actually have a community mm -hmm. say, like, this is my land, and this is just that, that, that interaction is so... Um, so interesting and useful to me as an archaeologist that uh, I've been asking those questions and doing that type of archaeology ever since, really. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine now. <laughs> it really was, I mean, it's, it's quite, I've never heard Craig talk about why you became an archaeologist before. <laughs> so this is a, you know, we've written a book together, we've spent hours yeah, talking, yeah. but you never had this conversation, which is really yeah. interesting. Um, so because you brought up Time Team, I'm <laughs> curious about more broadly what you guys think about the role of pop culture in you know um, wider uh, perceptions of archaeology but more specifically I'm curious what you think are the better um, portrayals of the past uh, if you have any favorite movies TV shows or anything like that that actually portray the past 
I can speak to this a little bit. Um, now, this isn't necessarily my, my sort of research wheelhouse, but I work as a curator at the ROM. I'm asked about this type of thing all the time. So one of the, and, and one of the things I like about working at the ROM is I'm asked to do things that I would never ha be asked to do. So I, I was recently asked, in quotations, to uh, curate a show on the Vikings. Now, that's not something I know a lot about, but it's something I can talk about. I was really interested in talk, exploring the Vikings in Canada because that's a really interesting set of questions, and there's a lot of myths that circulate about that. And so I really appreciate these moments where, uh, regardless of what the, the venue is or what the television show is, but when they, they I'm able to sort of comment to a wider audience on these popular or public portrayals of history or archaeology because it gives us this chance to it's a really unique opportunity that we don't get at a university oftentimes like when we, we just teach our students and they're already there because they're interested but actually to have this moment where I can sit and address a lecture theater of 300 or on Twitter I, I can talk to 10,000 viewers or through Facebook live at the ROM I can actually challenge that popular narrative I think any of them are quite useful in that sense where um, at a venue like the ROM I really appreciate because I can I can engage that you know I can say well this is why I might argue with your claim about the Vikings being somewhere where I don't think they were mm -hmm. why that's actually can actually be not just a fun thing for you uh, it can also be quite dangerous, right? And and that's that's a useful moment. That's a teaching moment. Even if they walk away and they say, "Well, that guy didn't know what he's talking about," at least they know that I think that's important. And and you know, so so um, on, in that in that sense, one of the the shows that I've actually seen as part of my you know my Viking journey um, has unfolded is the show that Netflix did called um, Last Kingdom. I really like it. Uh, because it challenges the boundaries of what a Viking was. And actually, one of the things I want to do with the, the show that we have at the ROM is to actually ask people, how much of the Vikings are you? Because mm -hmm. most of it's us looking back and trying to make sense of this really diverse group of people whose boundaries were quite diffuse and changed all the time, culturally, geographically, biologically, right? It wasn't a nation state. It wasn't a, a, this, this, this coherent whole that we think of. And so that's why I really like... Um, Last Kingdom because of it's it's a it's a person who's raised in the British Isles who becomes a Viking because he's essentially kidnapped or raised as Viking and then at 18 his Viking parents who have adopted him are murdered and he has to decide well who am I and he kind of goes back and forth back and forth uh, in the British Isles at this time uh, fighting for Wessex the Last Kingdom right and I really love that because it shows how diffuse I'm sorry uh, how um, uh, negotiated that boundary between Viking and non-Viking is and how much of it is projected on the past by us in the present. And so it gives you that moment to sort of challenge mm. uh, some of those popular perceptions. So I, I appreciate that show. Now, I'm sure there's many Vikings experts that are going to tell you there's all kinds of things right. wrong with it, but it, it gives you that moment where you can have that discussion. I mean, Time Team is an interesting example. It's a factual show. I'm doing mm. air quotes sure, for, sure, sure. for the listeners. Sure, sure, sure. Um, which was immensely powerful in British culture and made a lot of people come to university to study archaeology who wouldn't have otherwise come, and did a great deal for archaeology, and is unquestionably a force for good in archaeology in Britain. I think that the thing that the Time Team didn't do enough of was challenging those kinds of questions, mm. was kind of saying, okay, the people in the past weren't like you, so if I want to illustrate a Roman mm. villa, what I'll do is I'll put a nuclear family in a nice watercolour reconstruction <laughs> in the front of it, Okay, but what that's doing is saying effectively to the viewer, the past is populated with people just like you, and you can imagine yourself now in a Roman villa, in a Neolithic timber hall, 
in an Anglo-Saxon house or whatever it might be. And I found that, I find that troubling. I find that failure to challenge the uh, present through the past. I mean, that's the whole point of doing archaeology. That's what I loved about that first lecture from Mike Parker Pearson was it challenged me to think differently. In terms of shows that do that, there was a, a really interesting show recently uh, starring Tom Hardy called Taboo, which is set in the 19th, late 18th, 19th century in London about a guy who comes back uh, who's been living with non-Western tribes. And one of the things it does, I forget the details of it, but he apparently, played by Tom Hardy, has kind of magical powers. And the show never settles on whether those powers are real or imagined, whether he's hallucinating, whether he can affect the world, whether he is kind of has access to these spirits. And in that sense, I think in terms of some of the issues around the ontological turn and how we take non-Western knowledge seriously, that was quite an interesting show for bringing that in and refusing to give the viewer any kind of easy answers at the end. Oh, he's a trickster or he's making it up or he's mad. I mean, he probably was mad, but at the same time, he was having these kind of abilities to communicate with people that drew on his kind of his powers and his con connections with non-Western peoples. That was really interesting. And I found that show, it's not very archaeological, although friends of mine who are historical archaeologists were very pleased with its mm -hmm. uh, reconstruction of London in terms of the material culture mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. And kind of, you got a kind of real affective sense of the smells and sounds of London at that time. But I like that kind of magical realism to it that set in a western context where the kind of the he was the other in that sense who came right. back into that context and then disrupted all of these kind of business dealings and assumptions about what people were supposed to do and he was supposed to be a gentleman but now he was a a savage i'm doing air quotes again but that really i really enjoyed that kind of disruption of that in lots of ways it was quite a melodramatic show um and i'm i'm a, i would admit i'm a massive sucker for tom hardy all of the time but I really, I really enjoyed that as a kind of leaving that open question about what the status of that knowledge and power is, which I think is a really interesting open question that we're, we're wrestling with in archaeology at the moment about how do we think through those anthropological questions of alterity and ontological difference. Um, let's see. I wanted to ask, um, you may have already touched upon this when I asked about you know how you became an archaeologist, but... Um, going to maybe the next step of that is how, what was the process like for you choosing your specialty, choosing a dissertation topic and your, your niche within the field? So when I was an undergraduate in Sheffield and things worked slightly differently in the British system. So we, I was doing archaeology as a archaeology and prehistory was my only subject I was studying at university. So I wasn't majoring in it. That was all I did for three years. And I... Um, was extremely inspired, particularly my second and third year, by the work of John Barrett, who was a professor at Sheffield. He wrote a book in 1994 called Fragments from Antiquity that I still think is one of the greatest books in archaeology and certainly in British prehistory. And I was completely bowled over by the way he employed uh, Giddens' ideas of structure and agency, Bourdieu's ideas of habitus, to think about the past and the way in which archaeologists in general were writing about the Neolithic and Bronze Age of Britain at that time. Julian Thomas working at Manchester in a similar period of written time, culture and identity. Chris Tilly had written Phenomenology of Landscape and that kind of mid-90s, which is about, I suppose, six or seven years before I went to, before I was really studying this stuff. So these books at that point had come out and really started to make a big impact. 
that made me love theory and that's what I really loved I wanted to ask theoretical questions and engage with theory and so I went to see John Barrett who was supervising my undergraduate dissertation about a Bronze Age Barrow Cemetery in North Wales and said I want to be an archaeologist I want to be an academic what should I do and he said what you should do is go to the University of Cardiff because you're really good at theory and you'll keep working hard at it but you should learn more about the kind of prehistory in particular about the Neolithic. There's a guy there called Alistair Whittle who would be really good for you to work with. And I said, yeah, okay, that's great. And I applied to do a master's programme there. They had an MA in the European Neolithic that I applied to do, which was a really inspirational programme. Alistair was a fantastic teacher at the time there. They had three people who were specialists just in the European Neolithic and and a fourth person, Neil Sharples, who'd excavated a lot of Neolithic sites. So we had we were taught in small classes just really about the European Neolithic, particularly I did the British Neolithic. And that led naturally into me doing a PhD there. Um, I was lucky enough to get funding to stay there um, through a kind of national competition that we had in Britain at the time. And my dissertation question then came about trying to engage with theoretical questions that I was interested in. And I became very interested in identity. I'd read a lot of Judith Butler during my master's programme and a lot of uh, thinking about personhood for the first time. Chris Fowler, who's an archaeologist now at the University of Newcastle, started publishing in 2000, 2001 about personhood. And I read an article of his um, sitting in the room at university of my then girlfriend. And I read this article by him. And this is another kind of those light bulb moments. And he talked about Marilyn Strathern's work in New Guinea and Judith Butler's work on performative gender. And again, in one moment, totally shifted the way I think about the world. Chris is a really good friend of mine now, so, and I told him that's that story. But that there's one paper that had a really big impact on me again. And again, challenged what I thought about difference. The concept of agency that I'd been using, inherited from John Barrett, the kind of concept of agency that's inherent in Giddens' work, is a very kind of Western, effectively middle-class notion of choice and the ability to act in the world. That Joan Jarrow, for example, has pointed out how problematic that is. Um, but that paper, thinking about Butler's work about performativity and gender and Strathern's work about personhood, totally kind of made me rethink what I meant by agency. So I worked through some of those issues in my master's thesis, looking at identity, using drawing on performative practice, as I called it, at different Neolithic monuments. And then in my um, PhD, tried to think about identity, emotion and memory as three topics that could challenge somehow how we think about how people operated in Neolithic Britain. And I just took one one county of Britain, Dorset, which has a really great sequence of incredible sites and monuments, really well excavated, um, to try and think through what thinking about identity, emotion and memory in Neolithic context could mean for how we write about the past and how we write about archaeology. So all of it for me was quite organic mm-hmm. in that kind of sense. I didn't particularly want to do Neolithic archaeology when I started, but that love of theory and where theory was being best applied, I felt, when I was an undergraduate um, was something that really kind of drew me into that particular period. And, and I now work in lots of different periods, but that remains my kind of core study area to this day. That's cool. I'm glad, I love that you can point to specific journal articles that yeah. really impacted you. Yeah, it's one or two things that make a big difference and that really and that's always the thing about when you publish something. I mean, most of the things we write get read by very few people. Mm-hmm. It's the reality of these things. And the reason I love teaching and the reason I love writing is because you can sometimes have those moments and you can talk to a student after a lecture who's had a kind of, you know, scales falling from the eyes moment. And you just, that, the ability to do that 
whether it's through your written work, through a conference presentation, through teaching, right. is what makes being an academic just the best job in the world. Right. Going back to the question about how I became the archaeologist I am, I guess, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of it was going out and sort of at Sylvester Manor in Long Island, sort of asking those questions about who, who was this, and this is complicated colonialism, uh, colonial record there. And, um, and then shortly after that, I went to a reservation for the first time and started doing archaeology with a community. And so that, I was still an undergrad when that happened. And uh, that was when it really all came together and, and sort of like seeing like me as a, someone who identifies as an Italian American, who uh, most of my genetic code com comes to this country and this continent um, in the early 20th century, poor Italian people coming over. And uh, sort of thinking about that, that story about how I'm here and I'm looking at this land as my land somehow. And then there's a res reservation down the street and it's the rockiest land in the, all of Connecticut, right? Of course, that's not a coincidence. And you have the Pequot that we're talking, Eastern Pequot who we're talking to. And uh, that was really a formative, um, it wasn't something I read. It was actually being on that re reservation for five weeks and, um, and, and kneeling in the ground and doing that work. Uh, and, and actually feeling some kind of connection to those people of the past, but also the people in the present that were there actually watching over me to make sure I didn't do anything wrong was such a, uh, an important experience for me. And I, I thought, like, why would I do archaeology any other way? I mean, this is just great. And just uh, those conversations were so interesting to me and useful as an anthropologist in many, in many senses. But it influenced how I understood the past and uh, understood colonialism and actually, more importantly, settler colonialism. So it's colonialism that never ends, right? And how, how it's able to, to continue on. Well, the reservation system in, in New England is part of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a part of that story. As a New Englander, I was never able to sort of experience, really, because no one thinks of New England as having these reserve reservations, but they're there. They started in the 17th century. They're around. And so um, I, I just wanted to, to ask those questions of, uh, of, about colonialism and settler colonialism and, and engaging with things like practice theory. Um, I, I realized that I'm really interested in theory and, I, and looking at issues of identity, of course. And, 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 and then uh, I ended up going to Penn with, to work with Bob Roussel, who, who sort of opened my eyes to, to, to the semiotics of, uh, of Peirce, but also to, so, to some arguments about materiality that we, it turns out Bob and I have slightly different views on that. And actually we, we maintain those differences up to the present, I think. Um, but I think having that experience and having those debates and actually learning from someone who's so smart as Bob and who's read everything and, and, and just really well-rounded archeologist, um, was incredibly useful to sort of steer me in this direction. And what I ended up doing as a PhD student is we were working on these res res reservations in Connecticut and New England, and there was always this narrative of these group, this large group of indigenous people that left in the 18th century. And so like there's this absence that you see in the 18th century. And so what I did as a dissertation for my PhD is I, I, I did a dissertation on that group that left. And so to do indigenous archeology span is one thing, but to do an indigenous mobility it's almost like those two terms like sort of challenge each other. What is indigeneity to involve mobility? Well, not from a European perspective usually, right? And so I'm actually studying an indigenous group that actually went to upstate New York from New England and then actually ended up in Wisconsin. So I actually did an archeology span in all those areas. I studied them all across. I worked with the community to design that research. And actually uh, the community is incredibly interesting in the sense that they decided in order to survive settler colonialism, they would adopt the English language. They would become Christian. And so many archaeologists before me probably looked at this group or knew of this group and thought, the brother, they're called the Brothertown Indians. They thought, 
well, what's there left to, to learn about? There's no alterity, right? And that's what anthropologists right. feast upon, right? And so um, my question, well, I was like really probing deeply into the way they wrote the English language to actually, and I, I did linguistic analysis of the way they wrote to look, to see certain patterns that emerge. They're actually using certain words in different ways. And that's what I wrote about, but also looking at the material record and how that's being deployed and used. And it looks exactly like the Euro-American cemetery over there but there's slight differences that we need to look at too. And sort of looking at continuities and changes in this group, really getting at those original questions that I asked as an undergrad, and I still don't have the answer to, I think. Um, um, and it sort of all made sense. And, and now, uh, then I went to Lester and I started talking to Ollie. Ollie has some very radical ideas. And certainly we, we, our worlds came together and uh, we have a shared world now, I guess. But um, like I said, I think it's been a really useful uh, set of discussions. Yeah, certainly. The other thing that's worth stressing is the role of serendipity and all of these oh, encounters yeah. and things like that. So when I finished my PhD, I was working for a contract unit looking to get back into research. And a job came up at the University of Cambridge to work on a big project called Changing Beliefs of the Human Body. It was to write a book with John Robb, the project PI, um, which I applied for and got. No idea how, but I did. And so I, it was total luck that job came up. You know, they didn't design it thinking of me or anything. No, I existed, but I got that job. And that job forced me to think really differently about the world. This was a, John and I wrote a book looking at how the human body was conceived from 40,000 years ago to the present day. So I wrote about historical archaeology. I wrote about the Paleolithic. I wrote, I, and my PhD was all about the small scale, the intimate, the moment of the burial of a child. How do we conceptualize the way in which memories are created out of this? And now I'm trying to write at huge, gen millennial scales about things. And that isn't where my research would have gone had I not been put in a position where I was forced to think differently. I think it's very easy to get into a pattern where you do the same thing again and again. Okay, I'm going to take this model and now I'll apply it to this site and then that site or this landscape or that period. But actually having to get out of your comfort zone and say, do this is a really important part of broadening your scope as a researcher. Yeah, and actually that's one thing that I was actually ta talking to Ollie today about sort of keeping the dialogue going is really important, I think, because um, um, with parsing posthumanism, the set of uh, conferences we had, we had a session in, in Toronto, we had a session in, in, in Cardiff recently, and uh, the, the discussion after both of those sessions, which were similar set of papers, I guess, uh, were quite different in the sense that the North American response, which, which again was anthropologically informed, and um, concerned with, with, with words like anthropocentrism and, and uh, beyond the human uh, was largely like sort of still, it didn't want to parse. It wanted to take it all and package it as one narrative about how uh, things are becoming more like people and throw it away. Do we really need it? Was the question that was at the heart of some of that discussion, even though we started in a very different way. And then of course, Cardiff, the discussion went in a completely different you know, direction. And I think like, you know, if I stay back here in North America, which I intend to do, you know, it's really easy and you get into this comfort zone and you get students that, that, you know, are interested in certain things and not others. And so it's really nice to be able to have this connection between those two different worlds mm -hmm. and two different approaches to archeology span and sort of keep questioning those things. Like the the equivalent for me, I think, is working with you is your connection with indigenous people which working in a prehistoric European context, I do not have. And the people who claim indigenous connections to the European prehistoric past have some deeply problematic political views, in my, in, from my perspective, about 
nationalism and uh, I mean they wouldn't count themselves as white supremacists but that in the end they would say that they have they are white and they have more right to decide what happens to prehistoric bodies than a British Asian person does uh, which I would utterly reject in my view if someone's arrived and is a British citizen who came over from Pakistan or India or wherever they have as much right to say what happens to our heritage as anybody whose generations can be traced back as far as they like and the recent reaction to Cheddar Man the DNA sequencing of a Mesolithic British person British person that's scare quotes for the 15th time sorry listeners (laughs) but um being you know having dark skin has been incredibly revealing around these issues but then I mean you know talking to Craig who works with indigenous people and other people working in North America who have different sets of concerns around this forces me always to reconceptualize what are the political consequences of my lines of argument for a world where there are people who are deeply invested in the narratives about the past in very very powerful ways yeah you know i had this one one experience i'll mention very briefly that was really powerful for me that i should have probably said earlier you know uh when i first went to a reservation to do archaeology i was working with this guy named steve silliman at umass who's a great archaeologist he's berkeley trained very practice and agency oriented, just really interesting guy, wrote some really interesting articles in American Antiquity, great, great, anyway. So we, we went and we met with the Eastern Pequot um, Tribal Council. So this is something I had not ever done. So I sat down at that, that table for the first time, the whole field school, and actually a tribal elder started talking about the idea of having us out on his land with his ancestors, broadly defined. And he started weeping in front of me. And that was like, that was a very powerful moment. Cause he realized like, wow, it's not just about me trying to get my degree. Right. It's not, uh, this, this matters in a way that is really foreign to me, but I, I completely respect, I want to, I need to know more about it. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, Steve Sullivan's work is, is really at the, the cutting edge of this type of stuff. And uh, so I take a lot of influence from that, but, but that moment, right where you we, we that that's like that doesn't happen every day and right. so 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 that and every other moment that i have uh, doing archaeology with indigenous people it's not always uh, uh easy it's sometimes very uncomfortable for everyone involved but i think in the end it's worth i believe it's our discipline is worth it here in north america and, I, and i'm willing to have those conversations and by the way i'm in charge uh, you know i i oversee all collections of North American archaeology at the realm. So I am in charge of repatriation. So I do have really uncomfortable discussions where we have to talk about the racist practices that happened in the past. And, 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 but I think it's worth it. I I believe it, you know, that's my job at that institution, but I think it's worth it for my discipline to do that. And I think I, as a person become better, not because I agree with everything that's being told to me, but because it, it allows me to appreciate what archaeology is to someone who's not me, right? To an indigenous person. And to, it's not just about understanding radical alterity, the, the fact that you might uh, believe in animism in quotations, right? Or, or you, there's animism in your world in quotations. Uh, but the fact that you have an experience of people coming onto your land and taking stuff off of it for one reason or another, and meaning like to sell it or to make an academic paper, doesn't really matter to you, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. And so to get that experience, that's actually equally as important to get that from that interaction that as, as, as is to understand a different world, but also to understand the shared world where I'm an archeologist, I represent every archeologist in the world to you. And this is how you feel about archeology. span And maybe you have 
some suggestions for how it could be improved from your perspective. That's a really valuable thing, not only for me, but for my students, right? right. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think those, those moments are, are just uh, are important to, to, to emphasize. And sometimes I forget all those moments. And so I'm glad that you uh, brought right. that up. Like what about the places you work in, in, in the field, in air quotes, um, bring you back to them over and over? Um, do you feel like a sense of magnetism to place um, involved in being an archaeologist? I, I do. I work in a small landscape on the north coast of a tiny peninsula on the west coast of Scotland, so on the north coast of that peninsula called Ardnamurchan. And we've been working there since 2006. And it's there's no other archaeologists work nearby. It's not famous. I'm not working in the Stonehenge landscape or in southern England where lots of people do sorts of stuff. And I don't we sometimes dig Neolithic sites, which is my period of first love, but we dig sites from all periods. I've dug 19th century houses that were cleared out during the Highland Clearances where people were forced off the land to make way for sheep. I've dug a Viking boat burial. I've dug Iron Age sites, Bronze Age sites, medieval sites, every period. But that landscape does have a magnetism for me, definitely. It's partly um, a kind of romantic attachment. My, I met my, life, my partner on that field school the first year there in 2006. Um, my some of my best friends direct the project with me um i love being there it's an unbelievably beautiful landscape where you stare out over these islands that stretch out into the sea um, where the sky is the stars are unbelievable where you see wildlife where it's quiet where it's incredibly interesting and also that we learn about a landscape as an archaeologist to learn a landscape really i think you have to dwell in it in that kind of Ingoldian sense of dwelling. Well, I suppose Heideggerian, but it's Ingold uses it beautifully in his work. Because it's by being in that landscape, going there at least twice a year for what, this will be our you know, 13th season or something this summer. You know, I've been, I must have been to Ardnamurk and that bit of it 20, 25 times. And it's by doing that that we found loads and loads of sites that we would not have found without just walking over that landscape again and again and spending time in it. And there are no informants. There are four people who live in that bay now, all year round, all of whom moved in within the time we've been working in the, in the peninsula. There's no one who grew up there or something like that. Um, there's no one, you know, that was a bay that had 90 people living in it in the 1840s. So it was a bustling, vibrant landscape that has now been emptied out. It's not, I mean, it, it's got a complex history of all these encounters that run through the arrival of the Vikings, that run through Neolithic people farming there, that run through Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, all sorts of different things coming and going, forging a world in that place that changed. And yet somehow certain things continue, and that kind of the things that continue are the non-human as well as the human. And archaeologists engage with all of those different things. And I find that you have an engagement with community there. I mean, I do engage with the local community. It's not the same way that someone like Craig would do. But we do work with local people. A local archaeology group has been founded since we've been working there that now study the wider landscape and inform our work and we inform theirs. But there is a kind of something about that landscape that calls me back to it. And I mean, I'm, I plan on working not necessarily in that bay, I've got to finish that bay at some point, but in Ardnamurkin for, I don't know how long, but I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon. Uh, yeah, for me, so, so New England, uh, I grew up in this landscape same landscape that I do the archaeology in, right? I walked in the woods before I knew I wanted to be an archaeologist. And uh, and for me, um, that New England aesthetic of the, the stone landscapes, the Robert Frost 
uh, version of New England, the stone walls. Uh, it was really interesting to start to talk to indigenous people about those stones and what those those meant and what they they thought about those stones and what other stone features on the landscape of New England mean. And so that landscape is something I'm part of partially. And I've always thought of myself as part of when I was a boy, I played on those stone landscapes or, or the stone walls. And, um, and now as an archeologist, I explore the complexity of what they actually mean about, a, a, and it's not just one group of people or one type of history that's represented in, or that's, that is actually there in the woods. Uh, um, so it's slightly different, I think, uh, because for me, I think I've always lived in this landscape. I don't go out and, um, well, now I do because I live in Toronto, right? But 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 for the most part, I started doing archaeology essentially uh, more or less in my backyard, and so I've all. And I guess part of the question is exploring how there's a history of us there too, in a general sense, right? The Italian Americans weren't in Connecticut that I know of, uh, that part of Connecticut. But the point is, uh, I I'm part of that history too, and 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 also I would say like you know when I go back to the field sites that I, I've worked on in the last ten years. Uh, I, I most recently had a, a experience. I was invited back to the Eastern Pequot Re Reservation, and uh, Steve Silliman took me up to the, the datum of the site, which of course we marked out together in 2003 when I was an undergraduate. Not, I mean, as a group, not just me and him, right? But um, uh, just walking across that landscape, you know, I can remember those those those, those discussions we had. Just like I, I remembered that that very important moment that I talked about earlier. It's like you you remember that. You're part of that archaeological re archaeological record in quotations. You know, you're, you're you're part of that story, that narrative, and so um, I think I'll always be part of that land, uh, um, for better or for worse. You know, one of the lovely things is you know I'm invited to these spaces that not everyone's invited to, and to ask those questions, and so I, I treat it with great respect. It's a great honor. I just want to make sure we have time to get into this, which is um, basically you get to choose. Uh, the song or songs that we use to intro and outro this this uh, this episode. Is, is there anything that you guys can think of that you can tie to a memory of your archaeological career or? Um, the song for me is it doesn't have anything to do with digging per se, but it will be poisoned by Alice Cooper, and the reason is simply that in this I've run a long term field project on the west coast of Scotland. We started in two thousand and six and we're still going strong. We've excavated all sorts of sites. Neolithic chamber tomb that we meant to find and the first Viking boat burial on the UK mainland that we didn't mean to find and all sorts of other stuff like that. Not like that, we've only found one Viking boat burial but that's plenty for anyone. Uh, <laughs> caused a lot of trouble. But in the second year we had Sing Star, the kind of karaoke game and I did Poison by Alice Cooper and it kind of it transformed into this thing and then every year I had to do Poison by Alice Cooper as part of my the field school uh, the students I loved this, it. I have to go to this. Oh, well, I've banned <laughs> about after I done it for the tenth year running. I said I'm I'm not doing it until our final Ardnamurkin season. Ardnamurkin's <laughs> the place, so I don't know. We don't know when that's going to be. In every year, so is it going to be poison this year? No, I'm mm -hmm. not doing it again. It's a very I get very um, exuberant. There's a lot of dancing involved. There's mm -hmm. a lot of particularly the lyrics about black lace on sweat. I start. Mm -hmm. You know, it's yeah. a it's a cracking tune. Uh, Cooper's an absolute legend, but it's. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the song that I always think of with digging. But it's kind of at the moment, it's in this it's this absent presence, as Seth Fowles would talk about, because mm. it's not part of the field season, but everyone's waiting for it to come. Right. Its absence is as real as it being there in that sense. Right. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that uh, I think a lot about with collaborative archaeology and, and uh, sort of not only stunning worlds of difference, but also the, the worlds of similarity where, where our worlds overlap, where we do archaeology, is I think of my colleague Jay Levy, who... Uh, who we, we do Mohegan archaeology together. Well, one of the places where we have like deep overlap is our love of 
heavy metal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the song that we, we, we sort of like, I think it's really where the union comes together to fruition is, uh, is uh, Holy Diver by Dio. Cause it, and it's always a, an educational moment for the students because they're like, what is that? <laughs> I wasn't alive then. Yeah. But uh, uh, I like it because it celebrates that overlap. Is there something about archaeology and heavy metal? I feel like I've spoken to a lot of people recently. I mean, there is certainly, I think there was, I don't know how much true this is now, but when I was coming through archaeology, there was a kind of attraction to it for people who had various forms of alternative lifestyle. It might be heavy metal, but it might be vegetarianism, mm. it might be political activism, people we'd call hippies, in you know, or crusties, we sometimes refer to them in the UK, people who were like the Levelers and other kind of folky bands or New Model Army would also be really into archaeology. I think, our, I'm not sure that's so true anymore, looking at our student body as I see them now, and looking at the number of vegetarians, you do an interesting study about the makeup of British archaeology students by charting the number of vegetarians on a field school. And ours has definitely gone down since 2006. And 2006 was lower than it was when I was an undergraduate on field schools in 2000 and 2001. But I say, I think there was a particular period where it attracted people who liked, people who were going into commercial archaeology or, or um, CRM, who wanted a different kind of lifestyle about travelling, about not being in the same place, about not kind of following a traditional career path in the same kind of way and I, I don't know if that links to people who like heavy metal but maybe that's one mm. facet of the different kinds of groups that come together yeah. um, mm. to make up archaeology yeah we lack formal data but that rings true to me mm. yeah that makes mm. sense to me i think we're at a really exciting point in how we think about archaeology and about the way in which archaeology can contribute to lots of debates that are taking place in the world at the moment i think that the turn to a kind of less anthropocentric, less human way of thinking about the world is really important if we're going to tackle climate change, if we're going to tackle how we understand the construction of knowledge, if we're going to understand how to deal with the real serious problems that we face. And I think archaeology is really well positioned to contribute to that. And for the first time, we're not 20 years behind the theoretical debates in other subjects. We're in that conversation with people, Mm -hmm. you know, and I, th- I think that's a really positive thing about where our discipline is and where I think the theories that we're engaging with at the moment are so exciting and refreshing that they are really reaching out to these broader debates about where we are in the world. I think with that comes risks and dangers and problems as well. But I think we're at a really exciting point in terms of where we are as a discipline in those kinds of debates. Your crew.